This is They Create Worlds, episode 80, Vector Lights. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, it's the holiday season. This episode's coming out December 15th, 2018. So that means we need to look at some pretty lights. Well, certainly, uh, in the context of video game history, there were probably never any lights quite as pretty as those uh, strange geometric patterns that were showing up on monitors in the arcade scene in the, the late 1970s and early 1980s. I am, of course, referring to those few special games that were created using vector graphics rather than the normal raster scan. So we get to see all the pretty lights, all the different colors. It's hard to describe, really, how magical certain of these vector arcade games looked back in the day. I mean, you have to understand that arcades were very different back then. Many of the spaces that held arcade games were kept fairly dim. They were in shopping malls. You went into the dark recesses. There were games lined up on every side, all competing for your attention. This is the heart of the so-called golden age of arcade games. When everything's coming at you, there's attract modes, there's sounds, flashing lights, everything going on. And these vector scan games... They have a glow to them. I mean, obviously, we'll put some of these games in the show notes, but it doesn't really work. (laughs) You really need to see some of these games in person to truly understand kind of this almost hypnotic glow that that some of these games had. Because you're talking about these very, very bright electron beams tracing their way uh, across a monitor. What really made them stand out, particularly in my mind, was just how clear and crisp any line was. Mm -hmm. You could have lines go at pretty much any angle and you didn't have the pixelation that will occur sort of like a lower res older game would if you have certain lines that go at different angles. Think of anything where you have a line and then you have to change the angle that it's going at in an old arcade game. You have straight up and down looks pretty straight on and cool, Mm -hmm. left and right. Fantastic. At an angle, you just have these boxes that are connected at their corners. <laughs> right. And they're referred to jaggies or whatever it you want to call it now. Today, we still deal with this problem, but our computers are so advanced that we don't really see it too often. And we only see it in sort of an extreme case of close-up. That's what anti-aliasing is particularly aimed at addressing is this entire pixelation, jaggy line thing that happened when you try to do these angles to any kind of line. Exactly, because we have this this bad habit of doing all of our pixel art as, as individual squares, and squares don't do curves very well. That's geometry for you. And, uh, you know, in fact, this is really why these vector games uh, started out, um, why companies pursued these vector monitors, because You have to remember, and we've talked about this before in our uh, previous hardware episodes, when you're talking about a screen, a monitor, a television, it doesn't matter. At its core, that screen is being divided 
into individual squares uh, called pixels. And when you are doing a raster scan, the standard way of doing television back when we had CRTs before the whole HD thing, what that cathode ray tube was doing was hitting every single pixel in turn down the entire screen uh, to create a complete image. And it was doing that uh, so many times per second that your eye couldn't tell that it was a series of still pictures and uh, thought that it was actually a moving image. Even more crazy than that, it was more like seeing all of these dots get illuminated in fast succession line by line, and then that all sort of flashes together in your brain as a single picture, and then that picture combined with other pictures, and it becomes a fluid animation. Exactly. There's a video I'll try to find that actually slows that entire process really far down for Super Mario Brothers, and you just see just how slow just drawing just the line. It shows the Very drawing cool. of the line, and it's just insane <laughs> to think that, okay, something that's just doing that is giving me this fluid animation that I'm enjoying <laughs> playing. If I had to watch it at that level, it's unplayable. <laughs> exactly. So... In terms of computer graphics, this is a very memory-intensive process because when you're talking about programming a computer graphic on the screen, you're talking about telling this cathode ray tube which individual pixels on your screen to turn on and off. The more pixels you have, the higher the resolution, the image, the sharper, clearer, better the image looks because... A pixel is, for our purposes, is just a square. So, you know, if you took your television and divided it into four squares, and that was your graphic, well, that would be big, blocky, you'd know they were squares. So you need hundreds, if not thousands, of these squares to make a raster image look good, look credible. And activating and deactivating each individual pixel to create a computer graphic takes memory. Basically, in your black and white graphics, if you're just doing a basic black and white, then uh, the, the simplest graphics you can do, it takes one bit of memory per pixel to do a graphic because you can turn that bit on or off and you have white or black. When you get color involved, it gets more complicated because then you have to start telling it for every color you want to be on or off. So it can take Four bits is kind of the most absolute basic you could do then because you can have your black and white and then you can have your red, green, and blue on and off. But with just four bit, you don't really get very good color. To wit, look at a very early IBM PC, which had four bit CGA graphics and see why nobody was using that as a game machine in 1982. You will be horrified. Heck, just look up Windows 95 in the lowest color res it has, and it's just <laughs> insane. Sure. I mean, you know, 8-bit is about the lowest you can go and still have something that looks kind of good, but it's still going to be very broad colors, very stark difference between colors. 16-bit is when you finally get enough colors that you can have kind of decent gradations between color and a picture. Then 32-bit and beyond is when you start having enough colors to play with that you can more approach photorealism. For those of you with a computer and a computer that allows this, you can actually mess with your color depth rate, but I would write down what you have it at right now. (laughs) But you can, at least in the day, you used to be able to put it all the way down to 8-bit. I'm not sure if you can still do that on a Windows 10 system or a Windows 7 system, but at least XP and below, I'm pretty sure you can do that. Right. 
So, you know, long story short, the only way to get a really sharp picture where you have lots and lots of pixels is to have lots and lots of memory because you need all of those bits of memory to uh, encode the information on how to draw the screen. Memory is expensive. That's right. And memory is particularly expensive, or I should say small amounts of memory are particularly expensive in the late 70s, early 80s, when this whole video game is starting to pick up steam. This is a period of time when Bill Gates famously said that he couldn't see how anyone could make use of more than 64K of, of memory. That's K, kids, with a K, <laughs> not megs, which is bigger, right. or gigs, which is what we use now. That's right. So your standard raster resolution, and when I say standard, I mean the resolution that most arcade games were done at. This was actually considered high resolution at the time, was about 320 by 200 give or take. That is the resolution of your video games. And, and remember, uh, just kind of by way of contrast, like a standard CRT television signal back in the day, you know, that was kind of, you know, what you could get, the highest resolution you could get on like a CRT, like if you were playing uh, your Super Nintendo or whatever, that was 640 by 480. So we're talking about half the resolution of 8-bit, 16-bit home games and and computer games in the as well in kind of the uh late 80s or so you know half of that to give an idea of just how unusable that resolution is i know you can drop down your resolution on your computer screen to at least 800 by 600 and that's pretty unusable right and we're talking about something smaller than that yeah 320 by 200 ish i mean that was that was the the resolution. So, of course, they made games with that resolution. I mean, they had to. But it didn't lend itself to very much graphical detail, and you had to be very careful where you used your graphical detail. There's a reason that all the early games take place in space, and it's not just that Star Wars was popular and that Space Invaders was popular. That certainly helped, but when you have a black background, you don't have to turn any pixels on in the background. <laughs> And that saves you a whole lot of memory. So, you know, that brings us to Vector. And, I mean, we have talked about Vector Scan before. This is not a new uh, concept to longtime listeners, so this is the first time we'll be kind of examining how it was used more broadly. With Vector Scan Graphics, you basically are doing everything in coordinates instead of doing everything in video memory. You are giving the CRT a point and a direction. Uh, because as all you physics geeks know, uh, a vector is a <laughs> speed in, in a direction. So Magnitude. Yep. You give it a point, you give it a uh, a direction and a magnitude, and it goes off in that direction until you give it another command to move in a different direction. And in so doing, you can draw lines and individual shapes on a screen. Now, you're never going to populate an entire screen this way. There's a reason that raster scan was the method that was used for most video games and for television, and that why even today, when we're no longer in the raster scan era, we, we still do essentially the same thing in terms of directly controlling a, a group of pixels. You cannot draw an entire screen as fast with individual commands as you can when you just tell a CRT, just start at the top and then move to the bottom and go crazy, and then go back to the top and do it all again. 
you're not going to get games that have elaborate backgrounds. You're not going to have games that have detailed characters. But what you are going to do is you are going to have graphics that are of a much higher resolution. I think you could even go as high as as kind of 1024 by 768, which for a long time after SVGA came out was kind of the standard for raster graphics as well on a computer. Another thing that's a problem with Vector is that it does fantastic line art. It does fantastic line drawings, but you don't get any real fill to that. You don't get any kind of texture. You don't get any kind of volume definition to things. It's just line art primarily. Right. You can make three-dimensional images uh, using vector graphics because you can do wireframes and forced perspective to give the illusion of three dimensions, but you're not going to get solid shapes. You're not going to get polygons. And of course, it's the same reason we just talked about. You could theoretically fill in a shape with vector (laughs) art, but it would take so darn long for it to draw every single individual line to fill in a shape that what are you doing? At that point, you've wasted resources and it's time to go back to raster scan. <laughs> so it's, it's a technological dead end for video games. But for a very brief period of time, it represented the absolute best way to get really crisp, high definition images. And for certain types of gameplay, that was super important, as we're going to see as we go on and look at a few of these games. Vector stuff, it goes back uh, almost to the beginning of computer graphics, vector monitors. I mean, there were computers in the 60s that had vector monitors, and there were people researching with computer art on vector displays. It didn't hit video games or the, the commercial video game industry until the late 1970s. The very good reason for that is these were very processor-intensive and mathematical-intensive systems because you're giving it a bunch of coordinates. There's a lot of math, and so there's a lot of calculations that this thing has to do. So this is a really high-end computer system for the time, only something that is able of, of doing calculations relatively quickly, relatively quickly for the time, can actually do vector. So a vector graphics system was a $10,000 system in the 60s and 70s just the the monitor and the you know circuitry to control the monitor you know we're not talking about the computer of course the computer would set you back even well more than that but your cheapest vector displays were still ten thousand dollar displays and that ten thousand dollars 1970s dollars exactly you know this is a period of time when a video game probably cost i want to say around two thousand dollars i'm talking about an arcade game obviously not a home game the you know, arcade cabinet probably went for about 2000 2200 maybe 1800 if it's on the low end. So, you know, it's five times the cost of a mid-1970s video arcade game. You can't do it. So moving in that direction took a visionary. It took somebody who was a genius-level coder, a genius-level hardware engineer, and a visionary to be able to see this done. And remarkably... That's what it was. It was not a team of people that came up finally with how to solve these problems. It was a single individual, a single individual who's been very misunderstood in a lot of the mainstream gaming history resources, but whose story has started to come out a little more uh, more recently by the name of Larry Rosenthal. Larry Rosenthal was an MIT student in the late 60s, early 70s. 
when he was at MIT, he had an opportunity to play the pioneering computer game uh, that we've talked about many times before and will soon be talking about in detail on a podcast near you, Space War. There's a lot of stories about Rosenthal's relationship with Space War out there, and I don't know where these stories came from. I literally don't, because they couldn't have gotten them from him, because he wouldn't have told this story. It's, it's completely incorrect. I don't know where they came from. There's stories that he played it a lot. There's stories he did his master's thesis on the game. It's all quite simply ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. In point of fact, and this is kind of amazing, he only played it once. He played it at a new student or orientation. I think it was like 1968 is when he, he came to the university. It was somewhere around there. He played it at a new student orientation because they would always pull out Space War and put it on display because it was so fun. He never played it again in his entire college career, just that one time. But it stuck with him, obviously, because flash forward and uh, he graduates MIT He moves to the West Coast of Berkeley to get his master's degree. Then he finds himself at a crossroads, about 1973 or so uh, we're talking about here. He loves California, the weather, the culture, whatever. But, you know, he's from back east and he has opportunities, uh, job opportunities back at MIT in Boston. And he can't decide whether to stay on the West Coast with his heart or follow the money, essentially, and, and go back east. And then he's back at MIT uh, over Christmas, and he sees a computer space. We've, of course, talked about computer space. It's the game that Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney created that was uh, derived from Space War, though uh, changed the gameplay very much. And Rosenthal was appalled, <laughs> quite frankly. You know, he basically thought to himself, this, this is what Space War has come to? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's very primitive. It doesn't have all the, uh, the physics calculations. It doesn't have the player versus player gameplay. Of course, the graphics are much worse. The uh, Space War, a lot of people uh, call that a vector graphics game. Uh, the original Space War, it's actually not. That's not quite accurate. But it's essentially the same thing. The PDP-1 that the Space War game was programmed on had what's called a point plotting display. It ends up working out in very much the same way as a vector display does in the sense that you you have line art, you have outlines of shapes and uh, higher resolution and all of that. But instead of giving it a point and then a direction, you have to actually draw each individual point one by one. You can't just give it a vector. So that's kind of the difference between a point plotting display and a true vector display is every single point gets drawn ping, 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 ping. But still, that leads to higher resolution graphics than what a raster scan was capable of. And of course, computer space was done like uh, everything was done at the time via raster scan. So even though he'd only played Space War once, certainly never did his master's thesis on it. I really wonder where that story came from. Not true, kids. Definitely not true. He decided, I can do better than this. If this is something that is like commercial and out there and people are making money off of this, I can make something that represents this game better than this. <laughs> Dung heap. <laughs> no offense to, to Bushnell and Dabney. It's just kind of the, his, his perspective on things. Not that he ever used the word dung heap, but that, that's my word. I'll own that. So he decides that he will stay on the West Coast 
and he will dedicate himself to accurately recreating Space War, a game that I will remind you again, he's only seen once ever on coin-operated equipment. And so that's what he does over the next several years. This is unprecedented. I don't believe there's quite been anyone who's done quite the one-man show that uh, Rosenthal did and had a lot of commercial success with it. There were a few other people trying to do everything themselves. Dave Needle, who later went on to uh, Commodore Amiga and 3DO fame, is one of them, but none of his solo efforts were particularly successful. Larry Rosenthal created a hardware system that took a $10,000 piece of equipment and reduced it down to about $2,000. He did all the hardware engineering himself. Then he did all the programming on this system to create an incredibly accurate, even though he'd only seen it once, version of Space War on his hardware. I mean, it's an incredibly challenging hardware job and an incredibly challenging programming job. And even back then, when everything was, was simpler in a lot of ways, you had hardware people and you had software people. You didn't have people that were experts at both. I mean, you might have a hardware engineer that dabbles in programming and vice versa, but we're talking about somebody that had to do a difficult hardware job and a difficult software job all by himself. And have a full-time day job to make <laughs> ends meet and do whatever else is going on in his life. And he pretty much reinvents a more efficient wheel and code something from a one-time exposure. Yeah. <laughs> That's some pandemic levels of intelligence, aptitude, and nerdiness. This guy's got it going on, man. <laughs> Larry Rosenthal knew what he was doing. You know, I, I don't know the full story, mostly because technically I, I wouldn't even be able to follow it. Uh, Rosenthal has been interviewed a couple of times now. For decades, he hadn't been. Keith Smith, uh, who we've brought up on the, the show before, who's doing the arcade history all in color for a quarter, he was the first one to actually get Rosenthal's story, to actually interview him and, and get a lot of details. Uh, he has since appeared at some retro game shows. He appeared at the California Adventure Expo or whatever it's called, California Arcade Expo, I guess, probably. Doesn't matter. We can put his talk in the show notes. And that was recorded, and he told some of his story there. So his story's starting to come out now, but for the longest time, uh, we didn't have anything. He has gone into a little bit of detail about how. He kind of made this whole system work. He fudged a lot of the math. You know, I mean, he, he went with the same kind of philosophy that anyone that turns kind of a, a prototype into a practical product does. It's like, I have this very powerful vector system, and what I'm trying to do is get it to play games. I don't need it to be entirely pinpoint precision accuracy on every calculation in order to make my simple game work. So, you know, you cheat on the math. You fudge some of the numbers. You fudge the calculations. And as long as you know which ones are safe to fudge and don't cause a butterfly effect of the entire system going loopy, you can save on a lot of hardware by cutting out a lot of processing and a lot of math. Sort of like the kind of fuzzy math calculations that were done in Elite in order to make it accessible to lower-end PCs. Exactly. You could fudge the math on how things do. So as long as you did the full math every so many frames, the fudgy math could work just fine for the intervening ones. That's exactly right. And, you know, Rosenthal was, was presumably doing something similar. I don't know all the details, but yeah. He got this to work. He got a $10,000 piece of hardware down to a 2,000 piece of hardware. 
and then he started hauling it all over town in a briefcase. I can't even picture, you know, it took him a long time to find a buyer for his game. He was going up and down all the California companies that were starting to become involved in in video arcade games, of which there were several. Just picture yourself, Jeff. You are a salesman, middle manager, maybe even a company president. I don't think I have the attire for that right now. (laughs) Well, picture yourself there anyway. At a video game company. Oh, wait. Video game company. I think I do have the attire for that. (laughs) You're probably a startup because on the West Coast, these are all new companies that are getting involved in, in this business. They're the Chicago companies, too. They were pinball companies. But if you're on the West Coast, you're probably a recent startup. You're kind of starting this whole video thing. You're uh, riding this Pong fad that's just happened, but it's, it's very hand to mouth. Video games are kind of popular, but there's there's no sense that it's necessarily going to become the next big thing in arcade games. But, you know, you're, you're out there, you're doing it, you're pushing it, you're trying to make things work. And in comes this young man with a briefcase. And he's like, sir, have I got a deal for you? Then he opens this briefcase and there's this rat's nest of who knows what, because you, sir, as the salesman, president, whatever, you, sir, are not an engineer, most likely. So there's this bizarre thing in a briefcase. And he's like, $2,000, this will do an advanced video game that everyone is going to love. Sure. (laughs) That's Why don't we have you go down to Mr. Friend there? Well, I have a nice little call with Mr. Security, and um, maybe we might have to have some friends with white coats come <laughs> collect you. Yeah, and, you know, it's a small world. The The arcade industry, I mean, the video game industry in general is a pretty small world, but the arcade industry, the coin-op industry, has always been a particularly small world. Word gets around pretty quickly that there's this crazy guy with a briefcase that's trying to talk everybody into taking his game. And everyone basically thinks he's kind of nuts. Now, he does put it out on test. He puts it out on test at a bar or something and leaves it there. He knows the owner. He leaves it there for two weeks while he's on vacation back to Boston because, you know, he's still got family on the East Coast. Comes back. And in that two week period of time, it basically paid for his plane ticket. You know, it took in several hundred dollars. So he knows he's got something that people are going to play. He knows he's got something that's a winner. And he does manage to get a Bally representative, uh, the giant coin-op company in Chicago. Uh, He meets like a Bally engineer at a local conference. And he starts talking up with this Bally engineer about his game, and he's got it on test. Uh, You know, the Bally engineer comes out, takes a look at it, and it's like, okay, that's kind of cool. Let's let's get you a meeting. You know, when, when when it's not just a briefcase full of stuff. (laughs) You know, when there's something you can see a little more tangible, it's like, okay, there may be something there we can work with. He's flown out to Chicago. They see it. They like it. And they offer to buy it. There's just one problem. The royalty. And so this, this gets into a larger point about Larry Rosenthal. Another story about him that has been grossly, grossly blown out of proportion. And I know where this one comes from. It comes from a co-worker of his named Tim Skelly at Cinematronics, which uh, we'll get into Cinematronics in a little bit here. Tim Skelly, uh, when I say co-worker, Larry Rosenthal hired him, but then he left the company right after. So they they actually never really actually worked together. Tim Skelly 
has gotten the Larry Rosenthal story secondhand, I guess, from other people that were around Cinematronics. And whether it was a revenge thing, a PR thing or whatever, because he left the company, these things that Skelly were told that were then passed on to other people are are just they're not true. And and to be perfectly clear, Skelly is not deliberately lying at all. OK, I am not in any way accusing Tim Skelly of lying. It's just he was not there for these events. And so he's getting his information secondhand. The story goes that part of the reason that nobody would buy this game from Larry Rosenthal is that he wanted to split everything down the middle 50-50. He essentially wanted a 50% royalty on his product. Nobody does 50% royalties in anything, (laughs) you know? You bring an idea to somebody, they'll give you a small piece of the action as a way of saying, hey, thanks for the idea. But, you know, they're not going to give you half of it. If you want to keep half of it, find a business partner and found your own company. But, you know, of course, he he didn't know anybody or didn't have the ability to do himself. You know, he's a brilliant guy doing all this hardware and software, but it's a far cry from that to getting an assembly line going, introducing yourself to distributors and getting a, a coin operated game into the marketplace. So he can't go that route. He's finding a company and he does want a piece of the action for bringing it to him. But it was not 50 percent. He was looking for more like 5 percent. Which is, which is a very reasonable royalty rate. According to Rosenthal, Bally is like, well, we like your idea. It's great. We think now that we've seen this, we can probably do something similar with our own engineers. But because you have brought this idea to us, we would be happy to buy it from you for a 0.5% royalty. Not a 5% royalty, 0.5, one half of 1%. That's pretty low. Yes. So Rosenthal says, uh, thank you, no. This kind of begs the question. We're going to see Vector Games, I mean, it's it's no secret, spoiler, Vector Games are going to become uh, very uh, big-selling games in the late 70s and early 80s. So why, when presented something like this, and remember, they weren't just presented with the briefcase, they actually saw the game in action, saw that it was taking in quarters. Why be so stingy? I don't know the answer to that question, but if I were to speculate, we have to place ourselves in the time period. We're in the mid-1970s here. Video games are a thing. Certain video games like Pong, Tank, Grand Track have done well, but video games as a whole are still competing with a lot of other traditional coin-operated amusements, and it is not clear that video games are actually going to supplant things like pool and pinball to become the main attraction at the arcade. In fact, during the same period of time, pinball is starting to experience a resurgence with licensed tables where you go out and get a celebrity or something to endorse the table and build the game around them or an entertainment property. And then very soon after that, the first solid state tables. Pinball's on the rise. Video games are kind of up and down. It's a big investment to go to a whole new method of creating something because, you know, a game that is created with a vector system and particularly with Rosenthal's vector system, which is somewhat idiosyncratic since it's the creation of a single person, that's a whole new way of making video games. You have to learn different methods of coding. You have to learn how a whole different set of hardware works. Just controlling the beam is a challenge because that beam is kind of 
going to be going all the time. And it's a concentrated beam of electrons and you can burn a hole through your phosphor if it rests in a particular spot for too long. You know, in a raster, you don't have this problem because it's just, you know, that in a 60th of a second, generally speaking, or maybe a 30th of a second, if you're doing uh, uh, interlacing, it's going to go from the top to the bottom, line by line, and then it's going to go back to the top and to the bottom. There's nothing that you have to tell it to do other than, you know, when you're turning the monitor on and off, because it knows that it just goes from top to bottom, top to bottom. Vector, since you're giving it particular commands of where to put things on the screen, you have to always tell it where it needs to be. You have to always tell it to stop drawing here and start drawing there, or turn the beam on at this point and then turn the beam off at that point. If you're not careful about where you have it on the screen at any given time, you could end up resting it in one spot too long, and then those electrons just burn a hole straight through the phosphor on your screen, and then you have a dead monitor, <laughs> or at least... Uh, even if the entire monitor is not dead, you have a whole big black spot on the monitor that doesn't work anymore. So that's a big commitment. It's not just the monetary commitment. That is a big commitment to say that this video game thing is going to be big enough and popular enough that it's worth investing in a whole new way of doing things. Because at this time, even doing raster scan video games is a whole new way of doing things. It's It's only a few years old. I think that's probably why... Bally was kind of hesitant, and I think that in addition to the whole crazy guy with a suitcase thing, that's probably also why a lot of other companies were hesitant, because that's a big risk and, you know, the reward is not necessarily apparent. He basically needed somebody who was desperate. You know, if he's not going to found his own company to exploit his idea, he basically needed someone who was desperate that will take a chance on anything. And that's what he found in Cinematronics. We don't know exactly how he hooked up with cine Cinematronics. Uh, Ed Anderson tells the story that he was involved. Ed Anderson is a long, long, long time coin-op sales guy, going way back, and uh, he was in for decades. For a time, he was with a, uh, a woodworking company, uh, you know, a cabinet company is what I mean to say, a cabinet company called Tempest Products. And the way he remembers it is that Larry Rosenthal came to Tempest because he, he wasn't just going to manufacturers. He was going to suppliers, distributors. I mean, he was just trying to find somebody that would put some money behind him for this game, right? The way Anderson remembers it is that he came into Tempest Products and Ed kind of already knew about him because, as I said, the whole story had been going around. Hey, there's this crazy kid with a briefcase <laughs> hitting up all the companies. He's nuts. Just don't don't pay attention to him. But, you know, he gives him he gives him a, some chance to explain himself. And Ed kind of thinks it's a it's a good idea. I mean, he sees some potential there. But the way he puts it, uh, Tempest is about to be bought out by Ramtech, which was a manufacturer. We haven't been able to kind of independently verify some of this uh, about Tempest and, and whether Ramtech was really buying them. So it's, it's hard to say if, if Ed's remembering everything right or not, just because we don't have corroborating sources. But he says that because they were being bought out, they couldn't do anything for him. But he liked the idea enough that he said, but let me get you a lawyer who can go out and try to license this thing for you on your behalf, because I think you have something here. That lawyer, I guess, or somebody, lighted upon this, this company, Cinematronics. So longtime listeners may remember Cinematronics from our Laserdisc episode. 
another period of time when Cinematronics was desperate for anything to save their company and so took a chance on a strange new form of technology. They were, of course, the company that released Dragon's Lair. This is, of course, way before that in the mid-1970s. Cinematronics has a strange origin. Uh, we don't have a lot of information. We can, we can speculate on some things, but we don't know a lot. What we do know is it was founded about 1975, and it was founded in the San Diego area by two San Diego Chargers football players, Gary Garrison and Dennis Partee. Why football players? We don't know. I mean, neither of them has been interviewed about this, unfortunately. They were getting close to the end of their careers. They'd presumably made some money. Um, I think this was before the period of time where athletes were becoming million bajillionaires, but you make a living playing a game, and you, if you're smart, you put some of that money away. And so I think they were starting to think about nest eggs for retirement or for the future, and they were starting to try to figure out ways to invest their money. This was a period of time in the United States when inflation was running rampant. You didn't really want your money to just sit in the bank or even necessarily get invested in a bond or in the stock market because the spiraling rate of inflation could eat up all of your returns. So it was a period of time where if somebody had some money, it was often better to invest it in something solid something that would presumably appreciate in value over time. And then when inflation is finally under control, you can cash out and you get a good rate of return on your money that way. So my guess is that's why they decided to do something as, as crazy sounding as founding a video game company. This was the period of time when the Pong fad, as, as we talked about in our Pong episode, had kind of burned its way through the traditional arcade already, but was now starting to find new life in higher-end locations like hotels, cocktail lounges, etc. A lot of the individuals that were investing in putting these machines into said locales were doing so for the same reason that I just enumerated. A lot of them were people like doctors and lawyers that wanted to invest their money in something tangible rather than in something abstract because of spiraling inflation. I'm assuming that Garrison and Partee were taken by the same impulse, except they decided that instead of being one of these people that buys some machines from these so-called business opportunity seminars or from these blue suede shoe men who were kind of shady people that promised you, as we discussed, you know, these huge returns for your product, unrealistic returns on your product to, to sucker people in, I think they decided that they would go the manufacturing route instead. They would become one of these blue suede shoe men. I, I don't know if they were planning necessarily to go about their business in the same kind of shady way, but just the idea that let's be the person producing these things rather than one of these schmucks trying to buy these things and put them on location. I guess. This, this is 100% speculation. The only facts we know for certain is that two San Diego Chargers football players in 1975 decided to establish a company to make Pong clones, and they named it Cinematronics. The name, don't know where they got the name from, but it's kind of an obvious combination of cinema and electronics, because there's a TV and there's video graphics and it's electronics. So, hooray, Cinematronics. 
their early products are incredibly shrouded in mystery. We know they did these cocktail games, the same kind of stuff that's going in the lounges and everything. They may have even tried to do a home game. Keith Smith uncovered an advertisement in one of the local San Diego papers for a Cinematronics home game. Now, there's no pictures. Nothing's ever materialized. This could be 100% vaporware. It may have been that they were like testing the market by putting an ad out and seeing if anyone responded rather than actually having a product because <laughs> that happens. Stuff gets advertised all the time that doesn't actually exist. But they were at least considering the home. They may have stolen the boards to create their first game. That's the way one story goes. Or they may have found some in the trash and, and just dumpster dived and got them. Nobody knows where their first game came from, but there's interesting rumors there, too. Uh, but somehow Cinematronics becomes a video game company. As would could be kind of expected from this kind of strange, weird origin, I mean, they don't do very well, right? I don't think either one of them is very interested in running the day-to-day of this company. Garrison sells out pretty quickly. Partee stays on a little longer. But neither one particularly stays around for the long haul. But they do decide that they need someone to actually run the business for them because they don't want to do it. And somehow, and again, we unfortunately don't know the details, they hook up with a salesman who used to be a beet farmer named Jim Pierce. Jim Pierce sounds like was something of a character. Unfortunately, he's dead. Uh, He died back in 2011 or 2012 without ever having been interviewed. Keith Smith tried to track him down. Uh, the guy we've talked about a couple of times, and Keith Smith is the one that finally did track him down in the sense of finding out he was dead. So we don't know how he came to Garrison and Partee's uh, attention, though we do know they were running Help Wanted ads, so there's a good chance that he just he saw their ad in the local papers. What we do know is he became president of the company and he became a partner in the company. And he, unlike the football players, wanted to kind of make a serious go at it. He kind of got them away from this kind of shady, we're kind of on this gray area of these cocktail games. He hired a real marketer from the coin-op industry, or a salesman, rather, from the coin-op industry. He hired some engineers. They tried to start doing a couple of original games. He was making a legitimate go of turning this into a real company. But they still weren't doing great. I mean, this is a period of time when video games in general are only kind of so-so, and the companies at the top are just dominant. In this period of time, before the Japanese heavily got in, uh, kind of the big four companies, well, there were really only two big companies, uh, and that was uh, Atari and Bally Midway. Then Ramtech and Allied Leisure were not nearly as big, but they kind of came next in terms of sales, and and those four companies were 85% of the industry, specifically in the U.S., in the mid-1970s. So there's no room for this small nobody company, Cinematronics, so they're not doing well. They are, I mean, they're about in a receivership. I mean, the sheriffs are coming and they're locking stuff down, whether through Ed Anderson or whether just through Rosenthal finding them. In walks Larry Rosenthal with his space war game. In a briefcase. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I assume he's still hauling it in a briefcase at this point. For our purposes, in a briefcase. So... Jim Pierce is a guy that's that's desperate enough because, I mean, literally, the, the sheriffs are locking stuff down. I mean, the company is as close to the verge of going out of business as you can be and still existing. Jim Pierce is willing to take a chance on this crazy idea because <laughs> what does he have to lose, right? I mean, the company is going to go down the tubes. So he brings in some veteran people. He brings in Bill Cravens, who uh, has a long history already in coin-operated distribution. Uh, And this is kind of his entree onto the manufacturing side after being in distribution. He goes on to be in both manufacturing and distribution for years after. Uh, 
He's at Capcom for many years. He's he's at other companies. I think he's at Nintendo for a while in the, on the coin op side. Unfortunately, he's passed away. Keith Smith did interview him some. We got some of his early story on the Cinematronics thing from Keith Smith's interview. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, has interviewed both of Bill Craven's sons, who both went into the coin-op industry themselves, but this was uh, after Bill had already passed on as well. They bring in Bill Cravens, who brings in uh, a manufacturing guy named Ken, I guess, Beck. It's spelled very strange, B-E-U-C-K. So I don't know if it's Beck or Boyk or or what. But uh, he brings in a manufacturing guy that can set up uh, a really good manufacturing line for this game. Cravens knows distributors, so Cravens gets out and starts raising money from distributors to essentially finance the creation of this game. That's that's an unusual method to take, but remember, Cinematronics needs money now. So he drums up some interest in the game amongst some of the distribution people he knows in California. They get enough money that they can stave off the sheriffs for a little bit. Boyk gets the assembly line completely ready for this new game, and they're able to get it manufactured. And they debuted uh, in 1977 at the AMOA, but it continues selling kind of into 78, and they probably still had sales of it into 79. It's uh, released under the name Space Wars, and uh, that was very deliberate. That was Jim Pierce. Uh, We know this for a fact. Star Wars had just become a thing. So rather than having Space War, we have Space Wars, like Star Wars. Hello. It's Space War. We're going to be talking about Space Wars gameplay in, in detail later, so we won't talk about it here. But, I mean, it's, it's basically a perfect uh, a recreation of, of Space Wars you could get under the circumstances. It becomes a massive, massive hit. We don't know exactly the final sales figures. Skelly gives some figures that are absolutely, definitely wrong. Again, Skelly kind of took it upon himself to maintain the history of Cinematronics as a company, which is fantastic, and I salute him for it. It's just some of the information that he has is secondhand, and so his sources were were not always the best. He said 30,000 units. That's way too high. It never did that. But it probably did at least 7,000 units, and there's an outside chance it did 10,000 units. This is a period of time where if you sell 3,000 units of a video game, you're probably fairly pleased with yourself, three to 4,000. You know, there are a few hits that go higher than that, like the massive games like Breakout or Tank can hit 10 or 15,000. But, you know, if you're hitting three to 4,000, you're feeling pretty good about your game. And this thing does seven to 10. It's perhaps, I think it's the first game ever literally ever, to top the replay and play meter charts. It's not a direct sales chart, but they survey operators and distributors to see what their most popular games are, and then they rank them based on that. So it's not a sales chart, it's a popularity chart. But obviously, which games are the operators going to like? The ones that are taken in the most quarters. So in a sense, you can kind of infer sales from it. Space Wars is, to my knowledge, the first game to ever top the charts at those coin-op publications that was not put out by Atari or Midway. Because remember, they're the big dogs. They're not the only ones having successful games, but they are far and away the most successful two companies in the early to mid-1970s. 
So they have kind of a lock on most of the spots in the top 10, and one or the other always has number one. Space Wars rockets to the top in 1978 in the popularity charts. It remains in the top 10 for three years, which is not the longest something's ever remained in the top 10, but that's a good, good, good run. I mean, it's massively popular. It's massively successful. It saves cinematronics. Well, that's great for cinematronics. And, you know, Rosenthal's getting paid, too. I mean, they're paying him a salary, and he is getting royalties. He was smart enough to patent his system before all of this. Important distinction there. Yes. You know, once that game becomes a massive hit like that, Rosenthal starts thinking that he can do a little better for himself. Uh, You know, he kind of thinks it might be fun to have his own company. The exact sequence of events are told a little differently from, from different sources. Some people at the company remember it a little differently than others. Bill Cravens, uh, who we just mentioned, may have put him up to going off on their own and founding the company together. One of the other employees of the company, Joanne Anderson, uh, remembers it happening uh, slightly differently. Doesn't remember Cravens coming until a little later. So I don't know. But however it ends up happening, or however Rosenthal has the idea, he decides to leave Cinematronics and found his own company called Vector Beam, his own manufacturer. Vector Beam is also the name of his technology. That's what he called his system, the Vector Beam system. Nothing that Cinematronics can do about it. They are licensing his patents so they can keep using his Vector Beam system for their own games because they do have a valid license for the patents. But because it's not an exclusive license, and because he has the patents, he can go start his own company, put out the same stuff, and there's nothing they can do because it's it's his technology. <laughs> he patented it. He does kind of give them a kind of screw you on the way out the door. Uh, according to Rosenthal, he regrets this. Now, that may just be him trying to play nice 30 years later. I don't know. He says it was his lawyer that told him to do this. But he actually took the opcodes, all the instructions for how to operate his system with him when he left. He left no copies of how to actually program anything on his system. Oh, dear. They still had the system. Cinematronics still had their version of, of the hardware, but they couldn't do anything with it. Except that a technician had secretly, and I don't know why, uh, we don't know why, but surreptitiously had copied down all the opcodes before Rosenthal had left, and Rosenthal was not aware of this. So because of this one guy who had the forethought to copy everything down, Cinematronics was able to stay in the business of releasing vector games. And that's when Tim Skelly entered the picture. Tim Skelly had been working with a guy that was essentially creating the first internet cafe before internet cafes. It wasn't the internet, uh, wasn't even networks really, but there was this guy that walked into a bar with a computer under his arm. <laughs> Sounds so similar to Larry Rosenthal going around, who said that he was going to set up a, a storefront where people could come in and play games on his uh, on his computers, and he'd charge them by the hour or whatever, and there'd be original games that he had made. So, you know, it's kind of like an internet cafe. And uh, Skelly was intrigued by this and uh, worked with him to make a couple of the games for his system. Uh, The whole idea never went anywhere, but that got Skelly kind of interested in the whole video game thing and aware of the whole video game thing. 
he's in Kansas uh, City, by the way. So he's out in the Midwest doing this. I should mention that he's not near any of the hubs. So uh, he somehow manages to get a, an issue of, of replay. I think it was replay and not play meter, but it doesn't matter. A coin-op trade publication, and you know, all the companies advertise, and they do a directory issue every year where they list all the companies in the business. So he gets a hold of the directory issue and starts calling around to the companies in there saying he's a programmer, he wants to make games. And Cinematronics agrees to give him an interview. He actually interviews with Larry Rosenthal days before Rosenthal leaves. When I say days, I mean, they offer him a job while he's there. He goes back to Kansas City, gathers all the stuff, does a three-day drive back out to San Diego. And by the time he arrives, Rosenthal's gone. So they're basically like, now you make our games. Oh, dear. (laughs) And thankfully he could because those op codes were saved (laughs) by the guy. And so he gets to work and he makes a few uh, vector games that are reasonably successful. Games like Rip Off and Armor Attack. They do all right. They don't stand out in history uh, all that much, but he kept Cinematronic going. Uh, one game that gets a little more noticed sometimes is a, a game called Warrior that he did in 1979. It's one of the earliest one-on-one combat games. I say combat rather than fighting because we're not talking your Street Fighter type game. We probably talked about this game in our fighting episode, the game Warrior, but it's an overhead view and two swordsmen. Their swords are these little vector shapes, and you spin them around and spin the swords around, and they try to make contact with each other. Yeah, I remember looking up that video. Did talk about that in our fighting game episode. I thought we probably did. So that game people kind of remember today, just because it was a proto-fighting game. Armor Attack and Ripoff were decent hits, so Tim Skelly kept them going for a while before he left the company. Larry Rosenthal, things don't go so well for... They never really come up with any games that entice people to buy them. They have financial problems. They they have sales problems. So the company kind of starts to falter. Then enter Cinematronics again. Cinematronics doesn't like the fact that they have to pay royalties on every game that they make because they're continuing to license the system. So they're continuing to pay royalties on the patents to Larry Rosenthal, even though he no longer works for the company. So they finally swoop in about 1979 and buy Vectorbeam. The reason they buy Vectorbeam is, is to gain control of the patents. So they no longer have to license the system from Rosenthal. Rosenthal leaves at that point. I mean, he's not interested in working at Cinematronics. So that's kind of the end of Larry Rosenthal's involvement with the video game industry. And then he literally just vanishes for 40 years, almost. I guess closer to 20 years at the time that Keith Smith first found him. but. Vanishes for 20 years until Keith Smith tracks him down and and interviews him. So, you know, incredibly important, incredibly influential, but not in the industry very long. So, wider video game industry, where does that leave us with vector graphics? Well, very few companies get involved with it. I think there's a couple things going on there. First of all, you know, you have the Japanese companies. There is not a single vector scan game that is ever created by a Japanese company. My guess, and again, this is just speculation, is it's a combination of a couple of factors. First, we've talked about how in this period, Japan is always a little bit behind technologically. I think it would have been a greater challenge for a Japanese company to try to come up with their own vector scan system, just because they weren't necessarily technologically on par with the United States, at least in the arcade industry. Also, the interesting thing about the Japanese is Japan is a very visual culture. And 
they have a long tradition of manga and anime and, of course, other forms of art even before that. When it comes to manga and when it comes to anime, a lot of times there's this kind of uh, kawaii look, you know, the cute look, and there's this kind of deformed figure look uh, that continues to be very prominent in games like, say, the Final Fantasy games on the NES and and SNES, where you have heads that are out of proportion with bodies and big eyes and all of this kind of exaggerated features. The Japanese really don't seem to be as bothered by whether their depictions of people or objects in a visual entertainment medium really correspond so much with reality. That's something that American developers and American game consumers seem to be far more concerned with in terms of realistic proportions and all of that. So I'm not sure the Japanese would have necessarily seen the need to go to an expensive and finicky form of technology that allows them to have more realistic shapes and higher resolution graphics, because I think they were perfectly happy with the graphics that they were able to produce via raster. This is all speculation on my part, but it's it's speculation based on facts, <laughs> you know. Observation of what you know. Yep. Kind of brings to mind a uh, thing I watched trying to explain and try to understand why a lot of anime stuff has that sort of look, the crazy hairstyle, right. the crazy this. And it almost seems like they're almost like a lot of the characters are more Eurocentric than Asian in design. And there's different shows and different movies that are made that where the characters do look extremely Asian sure. in their look. That's actually something that's at least postulated by this one guy that sort of a cue that if we're doing something that's very more Asian centric, this is a lot more serious. This is a lot more mm. historical or fiction that's grounded a lot more in reality as right. opposed to something where it's crazy hairstyles and transformations and sure, sure. sparkle stuff. And it's like, we're well in the realm of fantasy and make-believe and doing whatever. Sure. And I think there's a greater tolerance for that kind of digression from reality in Japan, in Japanese visual culture, than there is in U.S. visual culture. I mean, if you look at Disney versus Miyazaki, Walt Disney was always very concerned, even from Snow White, that these should be fairly realistic-looking adaptations, whereas, whereas the Japanese are okay with things being a little crazier and more whimsical and more stylized. That may be part of the reason they didn't see a need for vector graphics, and, and then, of course, the technology thing. I mean, they may, not, they may just not have been equipped to try to do that. In the United States, I think it was also hard. I mean, I'm kind of talking about the Japanese and technology, but really, uh, that's, uh, that's a big leap for a U.S. company to do, too. I mean, if you're talking about a company like Midway or Williams, which gets involved uh, a little later on, pinball companies, they're trying to build up their internal video game expertise for the first time. They don't have a lot of expertise there. Uh, it's hard enough getting everyone up to speed on raster, which is relatively easier to deal with. So the pinball companies don't really ever do them, too. Midway does one game called Omega Race. We can put that in the show notes, but that's the only time they ever do a vector game. Williams never does a vector scan game. Gottlieb, uh, I don't believe, ever does a, a vector scan game. The companies that do get involved, and outside of Cinematronics Vector Beam, there are only two others that get involved. That's Atari and Gremlin, and they have a couple of things in common with each other. Both companies were founded by engineers. 
uh, Atari, of course, by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, and uh, Gremlin Industries by a guy named Frank Fogelman, who had been doing various engineering things going all the way back to the 50s, and then decided to found his own contract manufacturer with a guy named Carl Grindel in 1970, and then they got involved in arcade games. I think we talked about them a little in the context of Sega. Uh, We won't go into all that history again, but the point is, it was kind of a company founded by engineers for engineers. They also had a guy kind of in charge of their video game hardware named Lane Houck, who was a very accomplished hardware engineer and a decent programmer, so he kind of straddled that divide. And they were kind of very interested in pushing R&D. And, of course, they were owned by Sega, bought by them in 1978, so if they wanted to do some R&D, they had some money behind them. Atari, founded by engineers, they're part of Warner, they have money behind them, and they have a lot of R&D. They have their Cyan Engineering that we've talked about before in Grass Valley that's devoted to nothing but R&D. I think the reason that these two companies get heavily involved and nobody else really does is because they are engineering-focused companies with good R&D and good funding, and that's what allows them to get in. So Atari is the one that gets in first. Very famously, they are directly inspired by the Vector Beam system. They see that Space Wars game, and they're like, we gotta get ourselves one of those. And of course, they're blessed, as we said, with having a pure R&D operation, the CN Engineering in Grass Valley. So the guys at Cyan, they start creating a Vector hardware prototype. They get it fairly far along. And when they kind of get it reasonably well working, they send it to Atari because what what Cyan does is they will put a prototype together of something, whether it's an arcade game, whether it's a home console like the VCS or whether it's this vector scan thing. They'll do a prototype, usually a wire wrapped prototype. They'll define all the functionality and they'll figure out how it all works together, but it won't be ready quite for prime time yet. Once they have the basic concept figured out, then it goes to Atari proper and the engineers there kind of get it finished. So the guys at Cyan get a basic vector system in place, give it over to Atari. Uh, Two engineers named Howard Delman and Rick Moncrief then finish the system and turn it into something that can actually be used in the arcade. So then it's up to Howard Delman to decide, okay, we've got a hardware system. What are we going to do with it? And they're not going to do Space Wars or Space War because it's been done now. And Atari is not a company that wants to be a Me Too company. But Howard Delman is aware of a mainframe computer game that would be absolutely perfect for this hardware called Lunar Lander. Familiar with the, the whole Lunar Lander concept? Oh, yeah. I played it a lot when I was younger. One of the first PC games we played in Windows 3.1. Ah. You had your lunar lander, you have so much fuel, Mm -hmm. you have so much thrust, you have your main engine and you have your left and right, and you have to land somewhere on the moon, but it has to be on a flat surface, and you have to contend with momentum and speed. So you can land on that flat surface, but you can't go too fast. You have to counteract gravity. Mm -hmm. You can't come at it at too steep an angle left and right because... If your legs are going to snap off or something when you land on that flat bit. So you got to get yourself in position, slow yourself down enough, and just give a little burst of thrust in order to make sure you land properly. Then you could have entertainment brought in with 
lunar wind or <laughs> increased gravity. Right. Less fuel. Exactly. So uh, this game actually originated on mainframe computers, like I said. It was created by a high school student named Jim Storer in 1969. Of course, 1969 was the year of the moon landing. So, I mean, this is a period of time when that was just very much in the air. And uh, he decided to make a game simulating a lunar landing. It was text-based at that time. It was entirely text-based. You'd enter in your commands about your speed and your vector and all of that, and then it would tell you what's happening, and, and you can make your next entries, and it's, it's all text-based. But a consultant with NASA named Jack Burness saw a version of this game because it proliferated wildly. It, it was in David All's 101 Basic Computer Games. It was in magazines. I mean, it's, it's one of these games like Star Trek and like Adventure that just kind of became a part of computing culture very quickly. Everyone was aware of it. And this guy, Jack Burness, who was consulting with NASA and had access to a, a deck system that had a vector monitor, he decided to create a version that was graphical. And so it was all line art. It's two-dimensional. And of course, we'll, we'll put all this in the show notes. Uh, the Atari game, at least, is, in, is out there. I mean, the, this like deck... 1973 game there's probably no video i mean i doubt it exists anymore but the atari game is essentially the same in terms of looks it's vector scan so you have a lunar surface that is uh side view and is just defined by lines that are at various heights to, to show mountains and flat areas and all of that and then your lunar lander is also just an outline vector so howard delman's aware of this and thinks that, therefore, that would be the perfect game because it's, it's an existing vector game, but it's one that's never been commercialized. So they, uh, they create Lunar Lander as their first vector game. It's released in 1979, and it does pretty good for the time period. It maybe sells 4,000 units, which, again, this game is just post-Space Invaders. So, like, in the context of Space Invaders and later, those are low sales. But in the context of when it came out, because it's still wasn't clear that these huge production runs of 10, 20, 30, 50,000 units were going to be the new normal. It was good within the context of the old world. It's kind of fell in the cracks. It's caught in between the pre and post Space Invaders world. It has a fun controller. This was a period of time when, before you had standardization of wiring harnesses and inputs and whatnot, you had a lot of interesting and innovative control schemes instead of just a joystick and two buttons all the time. Uh, and Atari had a very adept mechanical shop, mechanical engineering, and so they did a lot of custom controllers. I don't know if you've ever played Lunar Lander in an arcade. I certainly have not. No, I haven't. But there's this big lever, and it's got a spring to, to center it back, and you kind of push against these rubber contacts. As you push forward to increase your thrust, it gives you some resistance from those rubber contacts, and because it has a spring to pop it back to the set position, it's also under tension. So as you're pushing that forward and backwards to increase and ease thrust, it, it really feels like you're holding on to something solid, you know, something real. It's very analog, which is fantastic. It's not a digital system. I imagine there's got to be, I've never looked, there's got to be some videos of Lunar Lander that don't only show off the gameplay, but show off the, the cabinet as well. And uh, if we can find one of those, we should definitely put that in because it's not just the gameplay on the screen. It's this controller is very cool as well. You're hoping someone had to have it retrofitted at some point. That's their first game with the vector scan, but 
it's their second game in Vector Scan that becomes their most famous game and becomes the best-selling Atari arcade game of all time. And, of course, I'm referring to Asteroids. Mmm, bullets. <laughs> There's some confusion as to the exact origins of Asteroids. Some of it's confusion because different people remember different things. Some of it's confusion because this and that has been misreported over time. What we do know is that the concept was basically developed between two individuals, two engineers at Atari, Lyle Raines and Ed Log. Lyle Raines, I'm not sure if he was quite VP of engineering yet, but if not, he became so very shortly thereafter. He was, he was an engineer, but he was kind of in middle management as an engineer. He had authority over people. Ed Log was a relatively new hire at the company who went on to be easily Atari's most legendary game designer. Lyle Raines saw Space Invaders and the popularity of Space Invaders, and he wanted Atari to have a response to that. But Atari is not a follower, it's a leader. So he didn't want to just do a Space Invaders clone like everyone and their brother was doing. He wanted something new and something fresh. He was not with the company when Computer Space was done. I mean, that was ages ago. I mean, that even essentially predated Atari. But of course, he was very aware of Computer Space and the way the Computer Space has you in space shooting at things, but flying around freely rather than like Space Invaders, where you're at the bottom of the screen. So he kind of wanted to combine the clearing of obstacles that Space Invaders has with the freedom of movement that computer space has. And he thinks that would be a good way to do the response. So that's kind of what he brings to Ed Log. There's also another game that enters into this. There's a, there's a game that at various times was called Planet Grab and Cosmos at Atari that was never released. Many, many arcade games are never released. That's not uncommon. It was kind of a strategy game where you had two people flying through space and there were planets and you had to take over the most planets, and if you touched a planet, it came under your control, something like that. This is, incidentally, not to be confused with the Cosmos tabletop holographic system that Atari later prototyped in 1981 and was never released. You will see some sources that say that Lyle Raines or Ed Log or somebody was working on the Cosmos holographic system, and that's where they got the inspiration. That is 100% wrong. Cosmos wasn't even a glint in Al Alcorn's eye at this point. This planet grab game was named Cosmos for a while. That system was called Cosmos, and people who didn't do their homework very well and didn't check very carefully thought that when these people were referring to Cosmos the game, they were referring to Cosmos the system. So anyone, if you ever see that in an article on the internet, it's wrong. I just want to throw that way the heck out there. So a Apparently, at some point, they added in the ability to destroy these planets. You know, you're supposed to conquer these planets, but I guess you could also destroy your enemy's planets. Either they added in the capability to blow up the planets, like I said, this is where different tellings get kind of hazy, or you could shoot at the planets and they didn't blow up, and Lyle Raines thought that was dumb. Or they were playing way too much Star Wars, and they really just wanted the Death Star to just run around and destroy <laughs> planets everywhere. Right, but, but the point is, this idea of objects in space that you can destroy is something that captured Lyle Raines' fancy. And so, uh, you know, he wants to do a clearing of obstacle game, and it's like, well, why not have uh, asteroids hurtling through space so it's not static? 
there's also talk about some game that had a giant asteroid in the middle that players could shoot at but couldn't destroy, and that's what led them to this. Uh, but that's that's Ed Log. I think that's Ed Log's recollection, and it doesn't jive with anything else that was going on. So it's very confusing. I don't know. But the point is, Atari was working on space games where there are objects in space that you could shoot at, and maybe you couldn't destroy them, and maybe it would be great if you could. So let's make a game where you're destroying things in space. And you're clearing the screen of everything in a similar manner to Space Invaders, except you have free movement like in computer space. There's some of that story that's probably not true, but that's the best we can figure out from the available sources. So there you go. More research needs to be done. And and then Ed Log, uh, you know, decided that just destroying things in space uh, was kind of boring. So uh, rather than just destroy them outright, what if when you hit them, they turn into smaller things and you hit those and they turn into smaller things? And now you have something that's pretty cool and pretty fun. And so that's essentially how you get asteroids. Now, Ed Log was a Stanford guy. So Ed Log knew Space War from SAIL, Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. And he had actually played the Galaxy game. We did an episode on the Galaxy game. That was the kind of custom PDP-11 based Space War adaptation that only two were ever made. And it was never commercialized because it was way too expensive. It was at the Stanford Student Union for a period of about seven years, and Ed Logg actually played it there. So he knew Space War. Asteroids has the same control scheme as Space War, and it has that same kind of application sort of of Newtonian physics. He kind of cheats it a little bit because he found if he implemented perfectly accurate Newtonian physics, it became too hard and too unenjoyable. But he has the like five-button control scheme that's based on the Space War control scheme, And he's got the physics in and all of that. So when they're first working on this, it's it's not a vector game. I mean, it's just they've come up with this cool game idea. Well, then it comes time to render the spaceship. He discovers that because of the low resolution, the thing's just a blob. So part of the gameplay is you have to be able to rotate your ship, rotate your gun around to hit different asteroids. He couldn't do that rotation in a way that was really easy to see what direction your ship was pointed because the resolution was just so darn low it didn't work so that's why asteroids went vector just try to think about that a ship in that scale in raster you're thinking maybe a six by six ship maybe yeah maybe Uh, yeah i mean maybe even less than that honestly don't know i do know the resolution like i said would have been about 320 by 200. Right. So you, you, know. you don't have many pixels that you're dedicating to this. So let's just say for sake of argument, we'll just do a six by six drawing. Just draw six squares next to each other. Now try to make all the possibilities you need in order to aim that thing. Yeah. And, and make it look good. I mean, it's And make just, it look good. Yeah. Even if you just do the basic triangle that we all think of with asteroids, it's not going to work in a six by six space. Exactly. At so nine by nine. Yeah. So asteroids would have literally not been possible without the vector technology because you needed that resolution and that level of precision to make a spaceship as simple as that spaceship looks. You could not have done that spaceship in the raster graphics of the time. And so, of course, Asteroids becomes a massive hit. Massive. They do 70,000 units. And it's really, uh, you know, in my opinion, I'm not the first one to say this, but in my opinion, it's just as important as Space Invaders. Because uh, I think we talked about this before, but if you if you think back to, to Pong, as we talked about in our Pong episode, Pong was huge, and then nothing captured the public's fancy in quite the same way right after Pong, and so Pong became a fad. 
And then people were less convinced that video games were going to be the next big thing because Pong was huge and then it crashed. Well, the same thing could have happened with Space Invaders. Space Invaders was obviously huge, but we've been there before with Pong. And, you know, in the United States, I'm not talking about the mania in Japan, in the United States, Pong and Space Invaders were really of about a similar level of success because there were about 70,000 Pong clones and Midway did 60,000 Space Invaders. Uh, When you put in the clones, it was probably a little bigger than Pong, but they were similar levels of phenomenon in, in terms of cabinets sold. In other ways, Space Invaders was much bigger. So Space Invaders could have crashed and then people would be like, well, that was just the Space Invaders fad. But Asteroids coming on the heel of Space Invaders and offering a completely different type of gameplay and being even just as popular, if not slightly more popular in the United States, showed, okay, there's more to this video game thing than one hit wonder concepts. We can have multiple games with different gameplay types that entice people. And that's really the beginning of the Golden Age. I mean, Space Invaders ignited it, but I don't think without Asteroids, you get all the way there and you don't get to Asteroids without Vector. So it's impossible to overstate how important vector graphics were to the growth of the industry in this time period. It really helped solidify things at a point where they really needed that help to get over that hurdle. Exactly. So, Vector. All of these games that we've been talking about uh, so far are kind of side view, two dimensional kind of games. But of course, very clearly, one of the things that Uh, is obvious about these vector lines that we kind of hinted at before, is it makes it very easy to do wireframe models. It makes it very easy to configure lines in such a way that you can do three-dimensional spaces. So Atari is the company that hits on that, first of all. Um, You know, they're having brainstorming sessions about what to do with this vector technology. You know, Lunar Lander was just, you know, the guy that created the hardware thought of a game to do with the hardware. And Asteroids was an accidental vector game in the sense that once they got going, they were like, oh, well, we we need that engine to do this. But, you know, there were more formal brainstorming sessions about what do we do with this technology. And Atari very quickly hit on this whole 3D thing. And uh, they decided to to start two games. Uh, In about 1979, they would have made this decision, one on land and one in the air. Uh, The one in the air ended up taking much longer and uh, was never that big a hit. That was Red Baron. But the the one that came out first and the one that was a hit was, of course, Battlezone. We won't go into the creation of Battlezone. We've talked about it before. But just to emphasize that Battlezone was something that had really never been seen in the arcade before, which was a fully three-dimensional world that you could kind of move around in. Now, Vector Beam slash Cinematronics got to a 3D perspective slightly before Atari did. Vector Beam started and Cinematronics finished after the purchase a game called Tail Gunner, which was a three-dimensional space. But you were just controlling a gun on the back of a spaceship, hence the name Tail Gunner, and there were targets flying towards you and you had to shoot at them. You weren't really moving around in the world like you were in Battlezone. You know, Battlezone, you're actually driving your tank around. That's an important milestone in... Uh, video games, kind of the first big 3D experiments, uh, three-dimensional world experiments. Uh, even though Vector ends up being a dead end, that's kind of another area that's that's kind of important. Now, the other thing about these early games is they're all black and white. Color Vector is tricky. 
because you're drawing lines. Raster scan it's is one thing, but with vector, you need if you're doing RGB, you actually need three CRTs to do RGB graphics, each drawing lines on different phosphors in order to achieve color graphics. That's tricky. <laughs> That's very tricky. But companies start looking into this, and I think Gremlin may have gotten there first. I think they beat Atari on this. You know, that takes us back to Gremlin. We talked about their founding, and we talked about how they were a very engineering-focused company. Of course, they are a subsidiary at Sega at this point. We can't forget that. They end up with a vector technology in part because one of their suppliers, Electrohome, a monitor company, comes up with a color vector monitor. You know, they have an R&D group, Lane Houck's doing stuff, and a guy named Alex McKay is doing hardware R&D. And so they see this vector stuff, decide it's a great thing, and because Electrohome is peddling this color vector system, they decide to go to color vectors. And so they kind of have the next interesting vector game after Asteroids, uh, which is a game called Space Fury. Now, this, this stuff is basically unknown stuff. It hasn't been covered very well, but... Uh, our good friend of the show, Ethan Johnson, has actually become the reigning expert on Gremlin because he's interviewed multiple individuals that were working there during this time period. And so a lot of what we know now about their vector games comes entirely from these interviews that were just done over the last few years. So I have to give a huge shout out to him for some of this information. The interesting thing about Space Fury is it is one of the very first shooting games where you can, it may be the very first shooting game where you can power up your ship. In between levels, you can choose enhancements for your gun of various types, like spread shots and, and other stuff like that, um, which of course becomes a very integral part of shooting games. Thanks to Ethan, we now know how that came about. Space Fury is very asteroids-like in its basic idea of your flying around the screen shooting at stuff. You're shooting at ships instead of asteroids. And uh, they deliberately decided not to do physics because they found it was not fun to do it with physics. But other than that, it's very asteroids-like. And uh, Murphy Bivens, who was creating this game, realized it was very asteroids-like and decided that that was a problem. So from a design perspective, how does he distinguish the game from asteroids? Well, he thinks to himself, I'll distinguish it from asteroids by letting you have more guns, more guns, bigger explosions, more fun for everybody. But then once he had more guns, he was like, well, you know, what's even more fun than having more guns is starting your ship weaker with fewer guns and then giving you upgrade pass to get more guns. And so that's that's how Space Fury it. I don't know that it was a huge hit and it's certainly a game that's been largely forgotten today, but it's kind of interesting. I, I, it may have been the first color vector game. Not exactly sure, but may have been. It was certainly uh, just about the first game with power-ups, and, and that's how they got there. Gremlin does several of these color vector games. Probably the most remembered today, uh, the biggest known one today, is their, their Star Trek uh, Strategic Operations Simulator game that came out in 1983. That one was Vector because they wanted to do a first-person kind of enterprise perspective and having the graphics, like, coming closer to a target and having those graphics zoom in and become larger. 
Uh, it was very hard to do sprite scaling back then in a reasonable way. I mean, it was done, but it was just difficult. So that necessitated the vector hardware. And they have this enterprise game where you have to, much like the Star Trek mainframe game, and I don't know if they were inspired by that or not, you kind of have to balance your shields and your weapons power and all of that. But it's it's not turn-based. It's real-time. You're going around blowing stuff up. And there's vector graphics. and They split the screen very cleverly, so you have readouts on certain part of the screens that don't change while you have your main view screen where the ship is. So that was a very complicated programming exercise. And again, by the time the game came out, that might have been something they could have done in raster. I'm not sure because scaling was getting better all the time, but at least at the point it was conceived, it's like because we want to be able to smoothly zoom in on these other ships and everything, this is something that that we can only do in vector. Atari, meanwhile, is continuing to have some hits in Vector as well. Uh, their first color game and their other, one of their other kind of massive hits. So Asteroids is a big hit. Battlezone is sort of a hit, but also sort of a problem. We discussed that in our Atari History episodes where they overproduced it and ended up having to heavily discount it to sell it. But they move a lot of units. Their next big Vector game, which uh, is their first color game in Vector, is, is Tempest. And this, again, is illustrative of what you could do at the time in Vector that you couldn't do in Raster. And it's the whole 3D thing again. So the uh, creator of that, Dave Toyer, he was looking through the idea book that they kept. They would have brainstorming sessions, off-site retreats, and then they would keep game ideas in a book. And if a person was stuck for an idea, they could look through the book and see if there's anything good there. And so one that he saw was First Person Space Invaders. Again, we're first person, so we kind of need uh, vector graphics. And so he decides, okay, first person space invaders, that sounds like something I can work with. So he starts doing that, and it's just not working. It's just not working. He can't make it work. But then he thinks back to a dream he had of creatures coming out of a hole in the ground, you know, kind of scary, nightmarish creatures. And he's like, I think I can make this work if I fix the gameplay on a geometric shape, like the the hole or the well the creatures are coming out of is right in front of you, and then you're along the sides of this hole or well, and you're moving around those sides while things are coming up out of the middle. Of course, we talked about Tempest just last episode with our six children of EA. You know, this is another, it's a vector game. This three-dimensional gameplay really wouldn't work in raster scan at the time. It's a big hit, 20,000 plus units. Again, it's another game that could have only been done in vector. So, you know, all of these vector games we're talking about are big hits. You know, huge hits. You know, 70,000 units, 10,000 units, 20,000 units. So, what happened? Why did we stop getting vector games? Well, It really comes down to the complexity of the hardware, especially when it went color. And once you went color, you couldn't really go back. These are incredibly difficult systems to calibrate. The beam, they're incredibly difficult systems to keep it drawing in the right places at the right time. They're incredibly difficult systems to make sure you don't burn out the monitor. And because all of these electronics were so finicky, they were prone to breakdowns and they would be out of service a lot. Arcade operators don't like it when games are out of service a lot. They make them go away. Right. So as raster games became more sophisticated, where you could do more, where you could do sprite scaling, where you could do rudimentary 3D, where you could do full color backgrounds, 
larger sprites, higher resolutions, vector games became less desirable. I think 1982 would have been the swan song of vector games if it wasn't for the power of a little franchise called Star Wars, which extended the life just a little bit longer. There was a guy at Atari named Jed Margolin, and in the show notes, we should absolutely link to his website because he actually has written out exactly how the Atari vector scan system worked. I mean, it's very complex math. It's not for me, but some of our listeners will probably find that very interesting. He was fascinated by the vector hardware and by vector scan and was really pushing to do projects in vector. And so he essentially got together a group to make a space game, kind of a first-person cockpit shooting game called Warp Speed. He wasn't the project manager, but as he put it, he kind of went out and picked his own project manager. You know, he wanted to be he wanted to do a game like that. He loved this vector technology. Partway through the development of this game, Atari makes a development deal with Lucasfilm, funds the start of Lucasfilm Games, and is interested in harnessing the creative and technical know-how of Lucasfilm in order to create video games. So because they have this relationship, they also are able to get a Star Wars license for this game that started life as Warp Speed. Warp Speed is in development for years. It has like three different project managers. It has all sorts of problems. I've actually seen the weekly production uh, or the weekly engineering meeting minutes for the game, which the Strong Museum in Rochester has, and it's just endless. It's going on forever and ever. Uh, It never seems to end. But it finally does come out in 1983. And at this point, arcades don't really want vector games anymore. There's a game called Major Havoc that comes out about the same time from Atari that just sinks in the marketplace because nobody wants Vector anymore. But the Star Wars name is big enough that arcades take that game. It's worth it. And it it does like 12,000 units. But it's the anomaly. By 1983, Vector games just aren't doing well anymore. I mean, you have a couple things. The market in general is starting to collapse. So that's bad. But also, you have the service headaches of vector equipment side-by-side side with the increasing sophistication of raster equipment. And no arcade operator, especially an arcade operator that needs to count every quarter now that the industry is not doing so well, is going to tolerate a machine that breaks down all the time. By now, you're having turnover of hot games every three months. It's become such an overheated, hit-driven industry that games are dead after three months. So if you have a vector game that spins just to pull a random number, I have no idea what the failure rate was, but let's say it spins three weeks of of those three months out of service. That's no good. It's you're not getting your investment back on that game in this kind of overheated climate. So Star Wars makes it, but really nothing else does. You can see the turn of this in the 83, 84 time period. So Jed Margolin after the whole Star Wars thing is done, he starts working on a game called Tomcat, which uh, is going to be a kind of flight simulator type game in vector graphics, F-14 Tomcat. As that game development goes on, he's getting less and less support for it, and the game never comes out in any form, but the work he's doing kind of ends up getting shunted into the uh, research that Atari is doing into polygonal graphics. A lot of the work that he does ends up being 
used in what becomes hard driving, which we talked about in our History of Driving Games episode, a very early polygonal driving game that came out in the late 80s. So there's kind of the transition. You know, Margolin's working on Vector because he loves Vector, but there's no enthusiasm at the company, and so he gets shunted into polygonal graphics, which by now it's becoming clear are going to be the far more effective way long-term to do 3D graphics instead of Vector. I think the very last Vector thing that comes out comes out in 1985. The reason for that is it's a kit. It's an Empire Strikes Back game. At this point, we've talked about how in arcades after the crash, you had so many cabinets left that were completely worthless and that operators couldn't afford to go out and and replace with a new cabinet. So you have this wasteland of arcade cabinets and a lot of companies turn to kits in order to repurpose those machines. Well, if you have a vector system, it's it's not necessarily going to work out very well to try to turn that into a raster system. So you had all these Star Wars cabinets out there and the Star Wars cabinets aren't making money anymore. So Atari does in 1985 release an Empire Strikes Back kit that can go into existing Star Wars cabinets and repurpose them. Again, if it hadn't been for the fact that Star Wars sold a bajillion copies and the Star Wars name still had a lot of power, you would have never seen a Vector anything in 1985. But they had to do something to get a little more money out of those old cabinets, and that's what they did. When Atari finally released a Return of the Jedi game a year or so after that, that was a raster game. You know, they didn't try to upgrade the Star Wars equipment anymore. So there's no clearer sign than that, that Vector is is just dead. So that's kind of the story of Vector graphics in the arcade. They were incredibly important to kind of jumpstarting the, the video game revolution in the arcades because they offered such great resolution at a time when it was impossible to get. But in the end, we're really just a flash in the pan because they were so difficult to work with. And Moore's Law says that eventually we're going to get all the screen memory we want. So 100 years from now, when, when we're in our holodecks, we can look back on these primitive line drawings and be like, well, that didn't work out. No, in 100 years when we're in our holodeck, the show notes can actually manifest a vector game for you to experience it in all its glowy goodness. Ooh. All right. Well, that wraps up this year. We hope you have enjoyed listening to Vector Lights, and then you get to enjoy the lights of your holiday season, however those lights may present themselves. But at least on the bright side, we'll have this whole big new year ahead of us with celebrations and drinking and our 100th episode. (laughs) You know, I was at a celebration recently, Jeff. Really? Yes, as uh, some of our listeners are probably aware, uh, at the end of November, I was privileged to be part of a team uh, working with the Smithsonian that got to interview the surviving members of the team, and I use that term very loosely, of college students and graduate students and university employees that created the game Space War, which, as we've talked about several times on this show, was really the first game that garnered both wide distribution and captured the imagination of engineers in such a way that it essentially led to the beginning of the video game industry. For our next episode, we are going to take kind of a hybrid approach of 
talking about uh, what went on there and the larger video game pioneers archive that the Smithsonian is working on amassing and that I've been privileged to be a part of, and then also look back at the history of the Space War game, which is a game we've touched on several times, but have not had a, a full episode devoted directly to it. So uh, Space War and the Smithsonian is uh, how we are going to be ringing in the new year uh, here at their They Create Worlds. Okay. We'll get your glasses ready, and everyone will see you right at the new year next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.